Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delvo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by Giselle Donnelly, also from the American Enterprise Institute, and Julia Zozo with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is David Cutler, Assistant Secretary General of NATO for Intelligence and Security. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Mr. Cutler, I um, would like to get us started on a question that we can't avoid on this on, on, on this podcast, which is which is the recent NATO summit, uh, which brought many significant pieces of news from Finland's and Sweden's impending accession through the new strategic concept to uh, the news of a sevenfold increase in, 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 in high readiness forces, particularly on NATO's eastern flank. Um, we might want to tackle these, uh, these subjects uh, in sort of separate mini conversations, but, but perhaps let's start with the, with the last one. I mean, readiness, we know, is very expensive. Uh, and there was a reason why countries have been reluctant to go full speed, uh, increasing the size of, of, of these high readiness forces on the eastern flank. So, so, so obviously the announcement, we, we have you know, applauded it very, very cheerfully here on the eastern front. Uh, but obviously it opens a host of practical questions of how it's going to be done, who's going to pay for it. You know how much of a you know what, what the sort of burden sharing is going to look like. So, so if 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 there are any specifics you might be able and willing uh, to 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 share with us at this stage, I think that would be that would be a nice place to to start this little conversation of ours. Yeah, sure. Thanks a lot, and and again, thanks for inviting me uh, to the podcast today to to say a few words about NATO and uh, and what's going on. So, as you said, we just concluded a transformative and really historic summit in Madrid with NATO's heads of state and government. And during the summit, they reached a number of far-reaching decisions that will position the alliance to adapt itself for the future. They agreed on a fundamental shift in deterrence and defense, as you said, and set forth also a new strategic concept. Uh, we also agreed, as you said, to invite Finland and Sweden to join our alliance, to deepen our relationships with partners, particularly in the Asia-Pacific region, and to provide long-term support for Ukraine. The summit really showed that the allies are now willing to invest more in NATO and to increase NATO's common funded budgets. And that's a key piece of how all the, uh, all the things that you're asking about will be paid for. 19 allies have now have clear plans to reach or exceed the 2% spending target that was agreed in Wales by 2024, in addition to the nine allies that are already meeting that target. Another highlight was the decision to establish a new billion dollar innovation fund, which is a groundbreaking initiative to sharpen the Alliance's technological edge. So in more specific terms about our defense posture moving forwards, allies have now agreed to a new NATO force structure and force model. Of course, allies have to contribute forces to, the, to that new force model. And this will be a combination of deployed forces, especially in the eastern part of the alliance, where we have already stepped up with more than 40,000 troops under NATO direct command, as well as home-based forces that will be ready to deploy also in very short timelines. We will, of course, build on the forces which exist in NATO countries. But the difference is that they'll now be organized in ways that can fit them into NATO operations and also into NATO defense planning. 
and ensure that they're available for NATO commanders. So in the end, we'll have at least 300,000 troops able to deploy within 30 days, with a good portion of those able to deploy within 10 days. The plan's to have all this in place by next year. And of course, it requires that allies contribute the forces they promised and live up to their commitments in Madrid, but we're confident that this will happen. These higher readiness forces will be organized in formations that are available to the NATO Supreme Allied Commander for Europe and will be pre-assigned for deployment to specific regions, again, largely along our eastern flank. So these forces will now comprise the core of the land element of the NATO new force model and the new force structure. On common funding, allies decided on a trajectory for funding out to 2030 that follows up on the decision they made last year to invest more together. The specific figures will be decided in, in the yearly or annual budgets, but the agreement reached in Madrid represents a significant increase in NATO's common funded budgets that will allow the alliance to invest more in pre-positioned equipment, in hardened shelters, and in infrastructure in order to ensure that the alliance forces can plug and play uh, in capabilities together within NATO. This increase in funding will also enable NATO to enhance command and control to provide more support to our partners and to hold more exercises. So again, that's a significant considerable, considerable increase in NATO's common funded budget and agreed trajectory towards 2030. These increases are needed because when the world is changing, NATO also has to change. Uh, if I may uh, follow up a bit on this, um, those are all uh, wonderful steps, uh, but the devil is in the details and in the implementation. One of the um, longstanding difficulties uh, ever since uh, the Alliance Alliance has enlarged, is how to get from the western half of Europe to the eastern half of Europe. Uh, the roads, the, the bridges, uh, the rail lines, so on and so forth, um, and also how to move laterally from north to south. Um, what is in the common budget or what is it, the thinking more broadly about how to um, improve operational mobility to conduct a coherent Eastern flank defense. Yeah, thanks. So, so again, I, I mean, plans will be developed this year and next year, uh, along with the specific funding goals. But we all see that issue as well about mobility and about filling these structures out. And that, that's why I made the point about the rapid fill and the transfer of the 40,000 troops at the beginning of the, uh, of the crisis period, even before the war, under the Supreme Allied Commanders uh, for Europe's command. Uh, so allies see that and have also committed to the necessary infrastructure changes that need to be made. So it won't just be the things I think that you've touched on about the, the infrastructure related to mobility, but also the necessary infrastructure for these forces to be hosted uh, in the countries on the eastern flank and that sort of thing as well. Uh, so I think this is a space that it just needs to be watched. Um, but I would tell you that, that the, the tone, the atmosphere, I think is notably different. And you see that also reflected in the language and the strategic concept itself about the recognition of the environment we're in now and what the future might hold. So I think there's a, there's a common view about the situation, a sense of urgency to make these changes and ensure that the funding and resources are available to give life to this new plan. And if I could just get one more slice of this uh, apple pie. Um, of course, the, uh, the sort of big uncertainty in all this is, is whether the Germans will be as enthusiastic about deploying out of their sovereign territory um, in the event of a crisis. Um, their their uh, commitment to the Baltic states, for example, has been 
somewhat hedged by their reluctance to do so. And earlier in the Ukraine crisis, they were reluctant to transfer arms uh, and ammunition, even old Warsaw Pact stocks, to uh, or, or German-made weaponry uh, to Ukraine. Give us a specific read on what you saw German thinking to be in this regard. That would be most helpful. Yeah, look, I, I think what I'd say is that, you know, allies throughout this have shown a very high degree of solidarity and unity. Um, Germany is a strong ally uh, and a key ally within the alliance. And they also uh, have made a series of decisions about weapons transfers and about troop movements and equipment movements uh, that have lifted alliance security across the board and have helped Ukraine as well. Um, you know, it, there will be differences in view. Um, Germany's not alone in that, but the reality is that the alliance has been, um, frankly, in, I think in remarkable solidarity and unity, even for the months uh, in the road to the war, uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. And so, so again, I think uh, we just need to look at what the net result has been in terms of their actions. Um, if we can turn a little bit to your trade, and that's um, information and intelligence, um, Dalibor and I were recently on what NATO calls the Eastern Flank, what we here call the Eastern Front, and several NATO member states um, on the eastern part of central and eastern part of Europe. And I found, um, or my takeaways also being from that region, were shocking in terms of Russian propaganda and how that's biting into publics. And of course, it's not just um, in that part of NATO. We see it all across Europe. We see it to some extent also here on the other side of the Atlantic. And NATO has been reacting to that. It has a center of intelligence now, or, or of, of excellence, sorry, um, uh, fighting um, through debunking and, and other mechanisms. But of course, it has its hands tied. It's a lot about member states' prerogatives. Nevertheless, I want to ask you, as you've been doing so much work on this within the alliance, to give us um, your takeaways of how we got here, how it is that so many people, even if we're looking at the polls throughout the war, believe that this war in Ukraine is staged, um, believe that um, maybe NATO is to blame um, for the conflict or Ukraine is to blame as opposed to Russia. How did we get here and what, um, what are the decisions um, that we've taken now with the most recent NATO summit to fix some of that? What can we do more um, to basically fix the polls and have a, a healthier understanding at the public level of um, who is to blame and um, how we can end this conflict. Yeah, thanks for that. So I'd say first, the um, I think you're referring to the Center of Excellence for Strategic Communications that's in, that's in Riga, in Latvia. Um, they do a great job to work across the alliance uh, as that center of excellence to really draw some good lessons learned and make some recommendations about key themes, tools that can be used. They monitor the information environment and make assessments and that sort of thing. Uh, at NATO headquarters, we also have the Public Diplomacy Division that's led by my counterpart, uh, Bibab Raja, who also incidentally is a, is a tremendous Lithuanian diplomat, or sorry, Latvian diplomat. And uh, she and Awana Longescu, the spokesperson, uh, really lead NATO's efforts in this space to get, our, to get our message out. 
um, we have a pretty straightforward policy, which is that we tell the truth and we try to maintain the utmost transparency in the things that we do and in the way that we communicate with the public. Uh, you'll find on the NATO website and also the strategic communications that they issue on uh, forums like Facebook and Instagram uh, and other channels. Uh, our position, papers about the things that we're doing, uh, and there are also several um, pages that you can find on there about dispelling myths about NATO. Uh, we don't go back and forth to debunk disinformation per se, but as I said, we tell the truth and we put our word out uh, through that website and those channels. And I, I think that has been very effective. There's a related piece of this, which is that the nations themselves uh, also communicate. And that communication is, is not just a unilateral tool, but it often amplifies and is very complementary to the messages of the Alliance as a whole. That's another tool that we use. Uh, and public forums uh, like this podcast and my engagement here with you, I think, is another example of what we try to do um, in, a, in a range of venues, in a range of nations, to try to get the word out. Um, we did polling uh, before the Madrid summit, and the results of this were also posted on the public diplomacy website uh, on NATO's page. And I think support for NATO across the alliance is actually very, very high. Um, we have called out Russian disinformation as a tool of hybrid warfare. We have also called out Russian disinformation uh, when it relates to things that they might seek to do, like false flag operations, to try to put the blame for Putin's war in Ukraine on the Ukrainians themselves, uh, as you've alluded to. And I think those were tremendous decisions and quite brave decisions, in fact, made by certain allies to release the intelligence information that they have to try to reduce the effectiveness of those tools that Putin might seek to use. And I think that those releases actually did have uh, a substantial strategic effect on the information space and probably also on Putin's decision-making about what he could do and when he could do it uh, in, the road, in the road to the war. I wonder if I could ask a question about um, Sweden's and Finland's succession. Um, we on the Eastern Front, I think we've been enthusiastic in an unqualified way about about this move, I think is wonderful news for the alliance and for those for those two countries. At the same time, uh, I think there is a kind of an obvious trade-off between how wide the alliance is and how closely aligned the interests of, of its members might be. And we've been having a conversation among foreign policy scholars here at AEI about uh, you know, whether this larger alliance will make NATO's out-of-theater operations more likely or less likely easier or more difficult than I myself could make the argument uh, both 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 ways, really. Uh, I know that the new strategic concept mentions uh, China in a very clear-eyed way. Uh, but I mean, the question is, you know, do you expect the alliance to be in a better position to, you know, do things outside of its traditional theater of operation, whether it's the Middle East or or Asia as a, after this enlargement, or or not? Uh, if there is a simple answer to that, we would love to hear it. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess first thing I'd say is that, uh, as, as you said, at the Madrid summit, leaders agreed to uh, invite both Finland and Sweden to join. Sorry, and those protocols were signed. Yeah, so Finland and Sweden are longstanding NATO partners uh, with great military uh, and intelligence and other capability that is highly interoperable 
with NATO. Uh, they have worked with us for an incredibly long time. And so uh, I think it's pretty clear that they will add to the alliance's uh, collective security uh, when they, if they are, when they are uh, ratified as members in the coming months. Um, so I, let me just say that as, a, as an opening and then say uh, to the other part of the question about where the alliance will go after, uh, I think we need to wait and see because, again, allies take those decisions as a group. And so we go from 30 to 32. Uh, they will look at the security environment and they'll make those decisions together as they have uh, in the past. But I think, it's, I think it's far too early to form a conclusion that, that will swing in one direction or another. Thank you, David Kattler, Assistant Secretary General of NATO for Intelligence and Security from Dalibor Rohaj. And Giselle Donnelly. And Yulia Zosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. Many thanks to our special guest today, David Kattler. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. Uh, some time ago, we promised you a monthly newsletter, and we are going to eventually deliver on that. So please do let us know if you're interested in receiving it. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.